0: That sound like you getting out of bed this morning? I am so with you. We're three days into the time change, and I still am finding it hard to get out of bed. You would think that three days in, you'd be adjusted by now. Not so much. And because we're not adjusted, it's uh, dangerous. The rate of fatal car accidents in the country increases by about 6% the week after the clocks spring forward each year. And our uh, sleep is out of whack. Sleep deprivation is a big deal. So we've invited Dr. David Sampson on the show, an associate professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Toronto, Mississauga, and the director of the Sleep and Human Evolution Lab. Dr. Sampson, thanks so much for being here.
1: Oh, it's an absolute pleasure.
0: Is there a common number of the uh, nights that it takes somebody to catch up when we move the clocks forward as far as sleeping goes?
1: Yeah, um, typically if you're to Undergo no behavioral interventions at all and just go with the flow. It takes about a week, but it really does uh, depend on your latitude as well. Um, It depends on really the cue. The most important cue is the sun and temperature. So it really depends on where you are geographically located as well.
0: Okay. And feng shui has nothing to do with it. How your bedroom is configured is not going to help you.
1: Well, now there is a thing called sleep hygiene And sleep hygiene is the way you uh, manipulate your routine and the environment with which you go to sleep in a way that can help improve and augment sleep. Mm. And obviously things like light are absolutely crucial. So the principal drivers of your circadian rhythm and your sleep are light and temperature, as I said. So you need to be really conscious of these factors in your sleep environment. So I can't recommend and stress this enough to your listeners, the kinds of light you have in your bedroom are probably the most important to affect your sleep uh, long-term. And the way you would measure this is through Kelvin. So light projects a certain number of Kelvin and between the 1,000 to 2,000 Kelvin range is essentially the kind of light you would see if you were sitting by a campfire or looking at a candle. The kinds of light in Kelvin you would be, Getting as an input, if you were, say, in Walmart or in a hospital, would be this really blue wave light, this really strong blue wave light, and it's much more in the five to 6,000 Kelvin. That's the stuff you really need to stay away from if you're planning on uh, getting a good night's rest, because the principal hormone that regulates your sleep, wake, activity rhythm is melatonin. And melatonin cannot flow in conditions where the retina is being bombarded by this nasty blue wave light at night.
0: Okay, let me ask you this. I'm one of those people that love a dark, dark room. I've got blackout curtains. I've got blinds in my room. Is there anything that could be detrimental about blacking out your room?
1: Yeah. So, in fact, this gets to the crux of the matter. Um, We live in what I would argue is a very mismatched state to what our ancestors lived in, where our ancestors had continual access, continual feedback to the outside environment. And we live in very buffered environments. We even control our light and our temperature in a way that can uh, profoundly disrupt our sleep. It's all about enhancing that circadian amplitude, basically making your rhythm stronger. And what happens is if you have a blackout room and you have no access to, say, the sunrise coming in to your sleeping quarters, then your body doesn't know how to cue itself and when to time its rhythm to enhance your physiological mood, your your cognition, and any other physiological processes. So actually, one of my best cues, I don't even need an alarm in the morning. One of my best cues is leaving those blinds open. And when my circadian rhythm is really augmented, um, I don't need an alarm at all because it's the first rays, the first motes of light, and mm-hmm. I'm up. How do you like life set. in the country? Yeah. Because I'm Um, guessing
0: you live in the country, life Life in the country, because I'm thinking you live in the country because it's so bright in the city that it's hard to fall asleep at night if you leave your blinds open.
1: Uh, Yeah, that that can be the case. If that's the case, then I might do something like put on some uh, some um, uh, a mask to (laughs) shield that artificial light at night if you need to. But it's really important that even when you're wearing a mask, you can still get a little bit of light coming in. And that's going to help augment the timing of your circadian rhythm in really profound ways.
0: That is really interesting because I was, I was not expecting you to answer that way. What's the optimal temperature that a bedroom should be at in order to get proper sleep?
1: Yeah, so most sleep studies show that somewhere between 17.5 to 18.5 degrees Celsius is the optimal temperature. Uh, range for your average person. Now, again, everybody's going to have a little bit of distinct difference in this, but I would say clocking in around 18 is great, but even better is timing it to where there's a peak and a trowel at the right times, to where there's a slow upgrade in the the heat in your environment up until the point where you wake up. And that's going to help your uh, stress system, which there you have a net every System in your body has a natural circadian rhythm, and what we call U stress. This is a U e- adrenaline, which occurs in right around the time that you wake up. This is your body's physiological process that is priming you for a an awaking day where you're going to be uh, very productive. And so, you want to also cue in your circadian rhythm so that all these other clocks and all these other processes work effectively as well.
0: Okay. Are we still at eight hours? Is that the conventional wisdom, and is it correct, eight hours of sleep a night for a healthy adult?
1: Yeah, that, now that's a great question, and that strikes at the heart of my research, which has been going out into small-scale societies all across the world. I've worked with Hadza hunter gatherers. I've worked with places in Madagascar, um, in Guatemala, Guatemala and Guadalajara, these small-scale societies, some indigenous societies. And what we're finding here is, in fact, Eight-hour sleep is almost unheard of. It's very rare. Um, And, in fact, when we average the values that we get from sleep studies, hundreds of sleep studies in the global north, and then also average in these small-scale societies in the global south, seven is much more of what I would say is the human average for a nighttime bout of sleep.
0: Okay. So we don't need to sleep as long as we do. What about this? I'm reading a lot about this thing called the second sleep. Where you, you know, people before electric light, yep. you would go to sleep a little bit earlier, then you'd wake up in the middle of the night, maybe midnight or something, do a little whatever you need to do. Sometimes it was getting busy so that you could procreate. I'm not even kidding. This is what people did back in the mm-hmm. pioneer days or, you know, get start cooking a meal for the morning and then you'd go back to bed and have your second sleep. Is that a normal uh, sleep pattern? What are you finding when you, you know, examine other cultures?
1: So we actually found precisely this pattern in Madagascar, where there was this pronounced second sleep somewhere between about 1230 and two in the morning. And this is based actually off of a hypothesis that a historian came up with called Robert Eckert. And he noticed that in the European medieval literature, there was these continuous references to first and second sleep. And this is because they were primarily an agricultural society. And when you don't have easy access to electricity, and candles are extremely expensive, you're going to have dim light melatonin onset, meaning melatonin is going to naturally flow when the light goes down. And that's going to be, uh, depending on what time of year it is, that's going to be around, you know, anywhere between 5 and 7 p.m., 6 or 7, 8, 9 p.m. And you're going to have a pronounced drive, especially if your homeostatic drive is strong, you're going to have a pronounced drive to go to sleep. But also, they would... It appears wake up in the middle of the night, pray, meditate, as you said, have sex. Uh, and I think whole I whole said getting busy. It's busy. a family show. Getting busy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Getting busy. And uh, yeah, I mean, well, that's the cornerstone of human evolution, right? Without that key component, yeah. uh, life ceases to exist. So, yeah, really core component. Mm-hmm. And then they would go back to sleep for their second sleep and get about their day when the sun rises. And this is actually something that we found in other small scale societies as well.
0: I feel like I wake up at 3 o'clock and then I, I, I'm i being wide awake. I could do that second sleep very easily, but I would have to take the yeah. second sleep till like 10 in the morning. Let's uh, talk about one thing that you're saying we should not do. And we do it immediately, most of us. Like either we're getting out of the shower and we're doing it, or some people have it before the shower. It's drinking the coffee. You're saying don't do that if you want to get back to normal sleep. So why shouldn't you drink a coffee right away? And when should you drink it? Because you're not saying don't drink coffee.
1: No, I'm, I'm a coffee addict. I would never say don't drink coffee. Um, yeah, this one's a little bit uh, tricky to, to start off with, but actually has a pretty pronounced effect. So the recommendation is about 90 minutes after the point where you wake up and get out of bed, wait about 90 minutes. And the idea here is to cue in with your environment. What I recommend for my students uh, in my upper level course at, at UTM and what I do myself is to immediately go outside. I have 10 minutes of meditation and I get exposure to the outside temperature, whether it's cold, whether it's hot, doesn't matter. And even if it's overcast, it's especially important because you're still getting the data of what's going on outside in the environment. And hopefully you get a little bit of a use you stress response. And if you want to augment that even more, many days I'll take a cold shower. I know it sounds absolutely brutal, but the effects can be quite pronounced. It's hard to, be in a bad mood, actually, after being subjecting yourself to a cold yeah, shower. Yeah, because what
0: could be worse? Happens, You're like, well, this is the worst yeah, thing that could, could happen worse? today.
1: <laughs> yeah, but ironically, it becomes quite addictive after a while. Uh-huh. And when you get out, the synap- what that stress that stress response does is it clears out the synaptic space completely of any residual caffeine or any residual ATP that you might have in that space. And so the coffee, when you eventually do come to it, the coffee is even much more effective and it prevents that, um, that mid afternoon dip that people often have because the half life of caffeine is quite long. It's about five hours and you want to make sure to time that just right. You don't want to take coffee after noon or in the afternoon, but if you do it about 90 minutes afterwards, that could be a sweet spot. And, uh, it's, it's. Uh, behavioral modification and intervention that's helping a lot of people. Um, And yeah, and if for those of you who are addicted, like I was, uh, it's kind of like one way to think about it is you can always substitute something else. I substitute hot water and it's the same effect of, say, somebody who's trying to kick cigarettes if they chew gum, you're substituting a behavior for another behavior and it helps to get you through that 90-minute mm. period.
0: Okay, so you can do that. So you get up in the morning, go outside. If you have a dog that needs to pee, this is really great. It's very convenient. Go outside yeah. with the dog. Spend 10 minutes. Come in. Make yourself a hot lemon water. I would do that. And then you uh, have your coffee after that 90 minutes. How long will it take yeah, me to adjust to sleeping?
1: Now, if, if you are cued into your environment and your circadian amplitude is high, it's much less disruptive, which is why I'm I'm encouraging your listeners to focus less on sleep and more about the rhythm because from an evolutionary standpoint, sleep evolved much after we evolved a circadian rhythm. All a circadian rhythm is, is a way for an organism to optimize the timing of their behaviors in their environment. So this was like likely the most simple cell mm. organisms on the planet that we share a common ancestry with going back half a billion years. They had circadian rhythms, but they might not have had complex enough neural substrates that were, say, brain-like, proto-brain-like to even warrant sleep because that's one of the proposed functions of sleep is to consolidate information and process information. So circadian rhythm first, and then the sleep comes downstream. So that's a a, a new take for your listeners I want them to consider.
0: All right. Well, listen, David, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I'd love to have you back again because I didn't think I'd be this interested in sleep, but I do like a good nap here and there, so maybe we'll have to talk about the benefits of napping one day.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'd be totally happy to. All
0: right. David Sampson is an associate professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Toronto, Mississauga, and the director of the Sleep and Human Evolution Lab. 911?
1: 911.
0: What's your emergency? Ah, I'm on a cruise ship! Ah, there
1: was an explosion! Oh my God, the ship is
0: sinking! I can't get out! There's water everywhere! We're going down!